My name is Matthew, and I'm the student ministries pastor here at Connection Point Church, which means I get to work with all of our teens from, six, uh, from 7th through 12th grade, getting to go on this journey of asking questions and learning more about who Christ is. And it is a lot of fun. I eat a lot of pizza, and I get to throw a lot of dodgeballs. It's a good time, guys. But today, I want to talk to you all about two different stories both of which centering around this theme of reconciliation and restoration that we see in life. The first is about a guy named Joe Avila and Amy Wall. And Joe, in an interview, said that there's a sign that hangs not too far from his house that says, don't drink and drive, and then underneath it there's a sign that says, in memory of Amy Wall. And he remembers about that night when he was drinking and driving and struck Amy, He doesn't really remember what happens, but he remembers all the shame and guilt, regret, and anger that came after the fact. And he remembered feeling like he was at rock bottom because for all intents and purposes, he was. He served 12 years in prison for that crime and amidst that process was introduced to people and programs that helped him to gather strength over his addiction and eventually be introduced to the gospel message and introduced to the resurrection power of Jesus Christ and the reconciliation we find in the gospel. And when on his release, he had gotten connected to a church, and the church was so excited about him coming home that they tied bows around the trees and put up a sign that said, Welcome home, Joe. And they welcomed him back with open arms, even though he didn't think he deserved it. But the scary part of the story was that both uh, Amy's mother and father, and including her brother, wanted to meet with Joe all separately, now 12 years removed from the loss of their daughter and their sister. And they did what you would expect, right? They outlined the grief that they had had over this massive loss, the way that their lives changed. But one of the things that they also acknowledged was that they had followed his progress through prison, seeing the way that Christ had worked in his life, seeing the way that he had been reconciled, and they each individually forgave him. And he recounts the power of that moment by saying, I sat looking at her father, this man whose daughter I killed, and he told me he loved me and he forgave me. And he said, that is the power of the gospel. That's the power of the reconciliation of what Christ did on the cross and what Christ does in each of our lives to be reconciled not only to each other, but to Christ. And that's a good enough story as is, but the really icing on the cake is that Joe's story didn't end there. He wasn't just forgiven. He also ended up working for Prison Ministries, which was the organization that introduced him to the gospel so that he could do the same thing for other people. It's a powerful story. And maybe our lives are not that dramatic, or maybe they're more dramatic. The reality is we are all called to be reconciled to Christ. Reconciliation is this big term that we often don't define, but it literally just means for relationships that were once broken to be mended and restored. It means for uh, a relationship or a situation to be brought back together and mended. In a biblical sense, though, it means for our relationship with God, which has been marred by sin and marred by um, disobedience, to be restored and brought back together. And so I promise you two stories, and the second story is a pretty famous one that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. It's called the parable of the prodigal son, and you might be familiar with it. And Jesus did this fascinating thing where he told a lot of stories 
with the intention that stories in our brains, the facts remain a little bit better than if we were just reading stats and facts, right? There's something about our brains that hold on to the truth of stories. It's why we teach kids from a young age the Aesop's fables. Because they tell a fun story, but there's always a moralistic truth. And Jesus did that all the time. He told parables because he knew the people listening, whether it be the Pharisees or the common folk, right, that they would re uh, retain what they were hearing in a story better than if Jesus just told them the facts. So he tells them this story, and it goes a little bit like this in Luke 15. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went out and he hired himself out to a citizen of the country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near to the house, he heard the music and the dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son... You're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, this story is pretty famous. Even the non-churched world knows this story relatively well. It's infamous in some ways. But it's often referred to, if you look in your Bible, as the, prodigal, or the parable of the prodigal son, but it's better understood by scholars as the parable of the two lost sons. Because the story is not about the younger son being lost. It's about both sons being estranged from the father in their own way. And so it begs a question to all of us, uh, why? Why is Jesus telling this story of all stories? If parables are to get to a point, what's the point? And if you look at the beginning of Luke chapter 15, verse 1, through the first half of verse 3, we get a little better insight. It says that now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. 
But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. And he doesn't just tell one parable, he tells a triad of parables. He tells a parable of the lost sheep, where a shepherd leaves the flock, the 99, to go find the one. And a parable about a woman who's lost a coin of great value to her, and so she rips her house apart, fervently searching for this coin because the coin matters. Then he tells the parable of the two lost sons. Now, if you hear only one thing from this entire message, this is the summation of all three of those parables in a very, if you'll grant me, oversimplistic way. God wants to see lost things found. God wants to see lost people reconciled. That is the whole point of all three of those parables. You can go back and read it. It's all of Luke chapter 15, but that's the point. Right? God celebrates when the lost are found. And the reason why he's saying that, because that kind of, to us, I think, goes without saying, right? But not to the Pharisees. Right? The sinners and the tax collectors, these lower social stratosphere people, were the people that would often gather around Jesus to hear him teach. And the Pharisees, not just this once, but many times throughout the Gospels, throw mud at Jesus for not only teaching them, but eating with them, because to eat with people was basically to uh, ascribe to them or to, to be considered in their company, right? To eat was a big deal. And the Pharisees are constantly slinging judgment and condescension, not only at the sinners, but also Jesus. And what Jesus is trying to get them to see is that God cares about the lost as much as the found, right? God cares about bringing back the wayward and seeing them reconciled back to him. And so it is, for all intents and purposes, a very thinly veiled attempt to point out to the Pharisees the error of their ways. To point out what the heart of Christ is doing is to see lost things found. And so there's two different scenes in the parable of the lost sons, um, both of which kind of focus in on one son or the other, two vignettes. The first focuses on the younger son and his very blatant lostness. And the second focuses in on the older brother where his lostness is seen as a little more vague. So let's look at both of them. The first scene, we see the younger son do something unthinkable, which to us in modern times would be more like rude or bad decorum. He goes to his father and he says, hey, I want half of the estate. I want my inheritance. Problem is the father's still alive, right? Well, to us, that's weird and kind of rude and you wouldn't do it. Well, in that day and age, it's tantamount to saying, I would rather have you dead, right? I want the reward or the benefit of your death now. And so I want our relationship to resemble that. And the father does what no audience member hearing this story would have thought. He gives it to him. He says, here, it's yours. And the younger son, it says, he goes off to the distant country and squanders his wealth on wild living. Now, people for centuries have pontificated and wondered and given their hypothesis of what wild living means, it doesn't matter. Uh, every biblical scholar says that it's left intentionally vague because it's supposed to almost work like a mirror. So when we read about the younger son, we see our own wild living, whatever it may be. We're supposed to place ourselves in that position and start to understand and resonate. So what he did doesn't matter. What matters is he went out to the distant country and wasted his life, wasted his inheritance on wild living. And worse yet, he finds himself broke because a famine comes to town, and so he needs a job. 
And so he goes out and he hires himself out as a, a servant feeding the pigs, which at that time for these people, for Jewish people, this would have been a morally objectionable job. It's not even like a low bottom of the barrel job. It's like against their religion. Because pigs were deemed unclean, and so to touch one, let alone feed it, was to make you also unclean in the eyes of the, the Jewish tradition. And so he's feeding the pigs, and it says not only is he broke, he's starving, and so he looks at the food that the pigs are eating, and he longs for it. And I, I have never felt a longing that deep to look at the food of cattle and be like, ooh, that sounds good. But I will say, I've made a rule for myself, I can't go to the grocery store hungry. Because like, I'll walk down aisles of food that doesn't even sound good, and I'm like, I kind of need that. And like an $80 bill turns into like a $160 bill. So I know for myself what a very low level of longing just because I'm hungry, let alone starving. You know, we throw around the term like, ah, oh, I'm starving, where very rarely are we starving. He is starving. And he's starving doing a job where he is against it, morally, religiously, but he's not even making ends meet. This is rock bottom. And maybe you've been there too, right? You've been at rock bottom wondering, how did it get this bad? How did it go this far? Right? Because the younger son went out to the distant country in search of something. We don't know, but we know it was something apart from the father. He wanted a life, meaning, purpose, value, apart from the Father, and I think we do that all the time. We go out to the distant country, wherever that may be for us. Sometimes it might just be our office. And we think that we'll find something that satisfies us and fulfills us, fulfills some void in our life that we can't find with the Father. Uh, Blaise Pascal is a famous philosopher, long since dead, and he had this idea that we all are born with this God-shaped hole or void in our lives. And he says, time and again, we try to fill that void with things that don't satisfy for long. They don't even have to be bad things. Oftentimes, they're good things. And he said, but the reality is the only thing that fills that ho- uh, void, coincidentally, is God. And so the younger son, it says he comes to his senses. You know, almost like you wake up from a dream. He comes to his senses, and he realizes... Nothing's stopping me from just going home, right? Nothing's stopping me from going home and being treated better than this. And so he gets up, he creates an apology in his mind. He says, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he sets off for home. And when he gets there, there's a thought in the back of his mind that maybe he'll be uh, confronted with resentment or anger or bitterness because the father would be rightfully angry, right? He would be rightful to be bitter, but instead, what is he confronted with? It says, the father had open arms. This is what it says in the passage. It says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Sometimes we have this thought in the back of our minds that says we've messed up too much or we're too broken or we're too far gone. And I wonder how long it took the younger son to work up the courage to go home 
to work up the humility to drop his pride and ego and acknowledge the fact that he couldn't do it on his own and that what he looked for, he didn't find. But the truth is, in the back of our minds, some of us have had this barrier to repentance because we think that God will be angry with us. And the reality is, God isn't waiting there with a wagging finger to tell us how wrong we were. He's waiting with open arms to embrace us. Right? We throw the word of repentance around a lot in the church, um, but sometimes we don't define it. And the word repentance is very simple. It means to recognize that the decisions you're making lead to death and to stop those, but not just that, to turn around and go the opposite way. So it means to make a complete 180 and go the other direction of where you were heading. And that's what the younger son does. He winds up at rock bottom and realizes that what he was looking for, he didn't find. But rather than wallow, rather than stay in the same place, he decides, I can go home. My question for you and I is, how often do we find ourselves at rock bottom thinking that what we were searching for would give us value and purpose and meaning, and we find out that for a time it does, but not long term? Right? Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your bank account. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's the toys in your house. Maybe it's substances, whatever it may be. They can be good things. They can be bad things. But the reality is the, son needed, the younger son needed to repent of his misconstrued desire. The sin and lostness of the younger son is that his desires were from something apart from the father. And so for him, faith looked like coming home. It looked like repentance. That's the first story. The second story looks at the older brother. And the older brother is an interesting character study because we know nothing about him. He is really there for this juxtaposition, this comparison between him and the younger son. And you don't really find out much about him except that he's basically the direct opposite of the younger son. Until verse 25, which says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near to the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and, the fa- and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because his brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The older brother is mad because his view of the father's love is more of employer to employee than father to son. Um, If you think of it this way, the older son has a point. He's mad. He's livid. Because in his mind, the younger son took the wealth, squanders it, and when he comes home should be punished. Should have restitution that needs to be made. But what happens? He's celebrated. He's given more. And the older son's like, I never left. I've been doing everything right. I've been doing all the things that you asked for me. Right? And so in his mind, it's this weighing of scales of, I've been the faithful one, and yet you haven't even given me a young goat, which is a weird thing to request, but whatever. 
right? But in his mind, it's not the father's love to his sons, which should be unconditional. Instead, it's as if a transaction is taking place where I work for you, I scratch your back, you scratch mine, right? I do for you, you do for me, in which case it makes complete sense that the love being shown is unfair. I mean, if you take out fathers and sons and you put in boss and employees, it starts to make a little more sense. Imagine you're the coworker who does all the work and is on time and fervently, you know, diligently working towards the goals, and then you have a slacker coworker who does nothing. And they drop the ball time and again. But rather than being uh, slapped on the wrist or even fired, they're given a promotion. You would be livid too, because that's not fair. But the gospel isn't fair. It's not meant to be. The gospel message isn't, you did for me, now I love you. It was, I love you, now let's work together. The love is undeserved. The love is unearned. But the idea that the older son is working out of is this idea of meritocracy, which means you work for your keep, you work for your place. And so if you want to get far, you have to work harder and work more and work longer hours because you have to achieve. And the father is saying, you have always been with me. I have always loved you, but I also love your brother. It wasn't this, you have to earn. It was you are loved. It wasn't about what you do. It's about being with the father. Jesus tells this parable, and both sons have a thinly veiled stand-in or placeholder of who he's talking to. The younger son, very obviously, are the sinners and tax collectors. He's talking to the people who have spent most of their life searching for meaning apart from God. And he's telling them that what they need to do is repent of these desires that are apart from God and come home. And so that leaves us the question, well, who's the oldest brother? Pretty simply, it's the Pharisees. It's the religious leaders. It's the religious elite, the people who did all of the right stuff. They went to the synagogue. They went to the temple when they were supposed to. They sacrificed when they were supposed to. They were generous with their finances. They gave. They served. They knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. By all quantifications, they were living the right way. And Jesus throws out this really stark warning and says, what if it's not necessarily about doing the right things, but maybe sometimes it's about also the motivation behind those. Right? Doing the right stuff, that's great. But the question is, why are you doing them? Are you doing it because you want to grow in relationship, or are you doing it because you want to earn favor? The story ends with a cliffhanger. We don't know if the uh, older brother goes in to celebrate. We don't know what happens. And that's very unlike Jesus. Almost all of his parables end with a concrete ending. Some of them are very happy. If you look at the previous parables in this chapter, the lost sheep is found. The lost coin is recovered. Even the younger brother comes home. There's happy endings. But we don't know about the older brother. We don't know what happens to him. And every commentary I read said it's left that way on purpose both as a warning to the Pharisees of essentially, which will you be? Are you going to stay out here and pout about the love that God has for all people? Or are you going to go in and celebrate? But it's also, I would argue, a very stark warning for us. I think for people who spend a lot of time around the church, especially people who have grown up in the church, our faith can sometimes devolve from wanting to be with God and wanting to uh, be in relationship with God to just doing the right things because we think if we do enough good, we're in our spot. 
that we think that God will love us more if I just go to church more, read my Bible more, pray more. And truthfully, those are all great things. I encourage you to do them. In a few minutes, I'm going to encourage you again to do them. But we think that by doing those things, God will forgive us. And God will love us. And we'll have a better spot in heaven. And the truth is, we don't go to church to, as an obligation. We don't read our Bible because God's sitting up there in heaven going, oh, I didn't do it today. Right? God's not doing that. We read the Bible, and this is a crazy foreign thought to our Western idea. We read the Bible because we want to know about God. We pray because we want to commune with God. We go to church because we want to commune with each other as we learn more about who God is. We serve because we want to serve the church and others because we want to be an ambassador of that love to other people. And I say that all to say you can do all of the right stuff for all the wrong reasons. And the point was never about doing more for God. It was about being with God, working out of the mentality that says you are loved, therefore let's work together rather than work and I'll love you. Because they do lead to different outcomes. There's a third character, though. And the third character often bleeds into the background. And he, he's in both of the vignettes, and it's the third character of the father. And the father is the most interesting character in the text because his actions are forgotten more often than not. We use the term prodigal in reference to the sons because we think prodigal means lost. It doesn't. Prodigal means to give recklessly. It means to lavish upon people to a point where it seems foolish. And so if we were to use the term correctly, we would actually probably use it in reference to the father more than the sons. The father is the prodigal who loves his children even when they don't deserve it, which seems foolish. Even when they've squandered it more than once, even when they've made too many mistakes and crossed the threshold of what seems like a good amount of mistakes or failures, God's still there loving. And if each of the sons are supposed to resemble someone in the audience and the father, you can probably guess, resembles God or resembles Jesus, right? Because it's supposed to be showing the great lengths that God will go to to show his love for his children. The great lengths that God will go to to see lost things found and lost people reconciled. It's why we read in passages that are so famous like John three sixteen and 17, this says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, right? It's a pretty famous Bible verse. And what I think is so important about it is God loved the world before they ever earned it. God loved the world before it even realized how far gone it was, how broken it really was. And God loved it so much that he wouldn't rest until he saw it reconciled. And so he sent Jesus. That's the power of the gospel message that God wants to see lost things found and lost people reconciled. And as we enter a new year, that's what I hope for us too. Because I believe this parable covers pretty much every part and stage of our faith journey, whether you're new to this and your desires have been all out of whack and you haven't figured out how to follow Christ yet. Well, then maybe today what it means for you is to say yes to following Jesus in the first place to surrender those desires that you think will fill you, but ultimately leave you feeling empty. And instead, turn your attention to Christ and come home, to repent, to stop and turn around and go back to the open arms of the Father. Or you're like the older brother, and you've been around the church, and you do the right stuff. But somewhere along the line, your faith devolved into thinking it was about what you do more than about who you're with. 
and who you're growing towards. The beauty of the older brother's story is what Jesus is trying to get the Pharisees to realize is they don't have to work so hard for God to love them. God already does. And they would be better suited if they just lived out of that love rather than trying to earn it. And so maybe that's something we need to realize for us too, that we need to learn to accept the love that God already has for us and live out of that place rather than trying to prove ourselves time and again. And there are a lot of spiritual practices that we'll talk about in the coming year as we go through the Gospel of John. But a few that I think are helpful regardless of where you are in your spiritual journey is what does it look like in the new year for you to prioritize intentional time for reflection? To prioritize waking up maybe a little bit earlier, staying up a little bit later and reading some scripture and praying, journaling, sitting in quiet. What does it look like for you to commit to being a part of a life group or being a part of the life of the church? What does it look like to serve or to Sabbath? If you want to know more about Sabbath, it's literally one of my favorite topics. I'll talk to you for like three hours about it. We can talk about it after church. But my point is, the story is about seeing two lost sons reconciled to the Father. And wherever you are on the journey, it is about our reconciliation and being restored back into right relationship. Paul says this passage in in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And we are therefore Christ ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Just like Joe Avila's story didn't end when he came home from prison and he was forgiven. Our story doesn't end on homecoming. Right? Homecoming and reconciliation, that's a very big part of our story, but it doesn't end there. You can ask any Christian, they'll tell you their testimony, but most sane Christians will tell you their testimony doesn't end the moment they accept the Lord. Right? It doesn't end the moment they enter into relationship with Christ. It keeps going. Our story doesn't end in homecoming. What happens is we go home, we're reconciled, and then what does it say in 2 Corinthians? We're given the ministry of reconciliation. We become ambassadors of the message of reconciliation to other people, which means we don't just accept the love. We don't just accept the forgiveness that God shows us. We embody it and show it to other people as well. We're asked to participate in the celebration. We're asked to come in and celebrate the homecoming of our brother. So today, as we enter into this space, we're going to sing a song called Reckless Love, which talks about the lengths that God will go to show his love to people, the lengths that Christ will go to show us that he cares about lost people being found and reconciled. And I ask that as we enter that time, that we do so in a prayerful state, reflecting, yes, singing, but also reflecting on what our next step might be as you enter a new year. What does it look like for you to be reconciled? And what I do implore you, say yes and come home. Let's pray. Dear God, today I pray that we know the love that you have for us, that we know the depths of the love that you have for us and the lengths you'll go to show that to us. I pray that we live out of place that says we are loved and cared for and we work and participate with you toward reconciliation. God, today, if we're in a place where we need to repent, I pray that we do so.
If we're in a place where we need to say yes and start up or start over, I pray that we do so. And I pray that the, the longer we follow you, the more we become like your son, and I pray that we grow deeper and deeper in relationship with you. As we come into this space, I pray that we do so with reflection and with prayer. Amen.